The January 6th committee officially issued the subpoena to Donald Trump on Friday, and the subpoena provides a roadmap for a prosecution of Donald Trump. And speaking of roadmaps for prosecution, a federal judge in California presiding over a case brought by Trump's lawyer, John Eastman, to block turning over emails, his emails, to the January 6th committee, citing attorney-client privilege rule that Donald Trump and John Eastman engaged in criminal conduct in connection with the January 6th insurrection and made very specific findings that the crime fraud exception applied to a certain category of documents ordering they be produced. That threw Trump into a tailspin. The special master is fed up with Trump's lawyers in the Mar-a-Lago search warrant case, where the DOJ, of course, is investigating Trump for stealing government records, including top secret sensitive compartmented records. Lindsey Graham loses his appeal to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to block his testimony. Lots of blocking testimony by Republicans to block his testimony before the special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, investigating criminal election interference. And Graham quickly filed an emergency application with the Supreme Court. And Steve Bannon is sentenced to four months in prison and a $6,500 fine, which was stayed pending his appeal for contempt of Congress for not responding to the January 6th subpoena was justice served. Popak and I will debate. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals granted an emergency application by the state of Nebraska and many other Republican leading states seeking to block Biden's student debt cancellation program, which will temporarily delay student debt from being discharged pending the outcome of that appeal. It's a week of ups and downs in justice. Uh, Michael Popak and I will discuss. This is Legal AF. Michael Popak, how are you, sir? I'm doing, I'm doing great. Wheels of justice and little wheels and big wheels running parallel to each other. We're going to talk about you know, how circuit courts can move forward and rulings while the U.S. Supreme Court denies stays and in the same kind of matter when we get to the student debt cancellation program challenges. Um, but overall, uh, another a really good week for democracy and for justice, Ben, as we go into each of our six segments today. It's important why we break it down where our democracy is being upheld, who's fighting for our democracy, who's truly fighting for our freedoms. Those battles are taking place primarily in our courtrooms and who's fighting against it. And we need to take this out of the darkness, shine light on it. And for example, when we talk later in this episode about the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals granting this application to temporarily delay Biden from implementing the student debt cancellation, it's important that people know these are all Republican-led states making fairly specious and frivolous arguments that their tax, their ability to collect tax income is being harmed by what Biden is doing. So this is not a both sides show. We do not both sides democracy here on the Midas Touch Network, and certainly not on legal AF turning to the January 6th committee officially issuing its subpoena to Donald Trump on Friday. Of course, 
in the prior January 6th committee hearing. They voted to issue the subpoena. Now we have a copy of the subpoena, and the subpoena sets out the roadmap, frankly, for prosecution uh, for Donald Trump. But why does it do that? I mean, the document itself, a subpoena, is a fairly simplistic document. It's like a one-page document that says you're ordered to produce records by a certain date and you're ordered to show up for testimony on a certain date here. Please produce documents in the Longworth House building, the House of Representatives, on November 4th, 2022, and you're ordered to provide testimony November 14th, 2022. So why is there this four-page letter with this huge schedule that has these document requests in detail that is very, very, very specific because ultimately the January 6th committee recognizes and realizes that Donald Trump's not going to show up. He's likely going to object to it. They want to make a record both publicly and as well for the courts about the relevance here, why his testimony is needed. Uh, and in fact, and I'll talk about this in a moment, that it actually is not, and I didn't know this, Popak, until I read this letter, not unprecedented for a president to give testimony before Congress. In fact, there's been at least four presidents no, who six. have done so. Six, six who have six. done so in the past. Six, <laughs> Michael Popak, who have done so in the past. But let me just say, Here's the roadmap that they basically say when they write this letter, Dear President Trump's pursuant to the resolution, we're subpoenaing you. It says a little bit more than that, but it goes, as demonstrated in our hearings, we have assembled overwhelming evidence, including from dozens of your former appointees and staff that you personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transition of power. The multi-part effort included, but was not limited to, purposefully and maliciously disseminating false allegations of fraud related to the election, attempting to corrupt the Department of Justice, illegally pressuring state officials and legislatures, orchestrating and overseeing an effort to obtain and transmit false electors, corruptly pressuring your own vice president to unilaterally refuse to count electoral votes, pressuring members of Congress to object to valid slates of electors, filing false information under oath, more on yep. that when we talk about Judge <laughs> Carter's ruling, yep. summoning tens of thousands of supporters to Washington, D.C., knowing they were angry and some were armed, send, sending them to the Capitol, sending a social media message to the nation at 2.24 p.m. while knowing full well that the violent attack on the Capitol was occurring, refusing for hours to disband your rioting supporters. And it goes on to say more, but Popak, let me stop there. What do you think about that roadmap? What do you think about this subpoena? It is exactly powerful, powerful stuff. It's exactly what we thought was um, almost the closing argument that the Jan 6 committee had made when they decided to vote to issue the subpoena. It is, there, there can be no doubt when you combine uh, the Judge Carter segment we're going to do next in his rulings about the Eastman emails and the crime fraud exception, and they're almost like speaking to each other. You know, Judge Carter's ruling we'll talk about in depth finding that the president knew he, that he'd filed false documents in a courtroom about the Georgia ballots and and the Jan 6 letter anticipating, as I think it came first, anticipating Judge Carter's ruling and talking about, as you noted, 
that he one of the many many things he did to orchestrate um, the obstruction of the peaceful transfer of power. Donald Trump filed false information under oath in a courtroom, and I, all of those things, which is really the start of when Benny Thompson and um, Liz Cheney at the very first session, nine nine sessions ago, gave the arc of what they were going to be presenting over those sessions. They've now delivered on that. And this um, this evidence that's already been um, obtained by them, presented by them, they're now turning to the person at the center of all of it, the leader of all of it, the, the capo de capo of all of it, to come forward and give his own testimony about, and then you look at the subpoena itself, uh, about you know everything that he did um, related to Jan 6, all the texts and calls, all of Donald Trump's communications with Congress and members of Congress, all of Donald Trump's communications with extremist groups, like the ones that are being tried up the street, like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, all of his communications with Flynn, with Stone, with a whole, um, with a whole rogues gallery of people that we're going to talk about throughout this podcast as well. Um, Eastman, Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Boris Epstein, another lawyer, Christina Bob, another Trump lawyer, Jenna Ellis, the same, Cleta Mitchell, the same. And we're going to talk about some of these same people when we get into the um, Judge Carter piece later today. And, and all of these same people, these are the cast of characters, the rogues gallery that Trump commanded and did his bidding um, to try to stop the peaceful transfer of power. So it is, it, is, um, it, it is not unprecedented, as you mentioned at the top of the piece, Ben, to have a president, both former and current, testify before Congress as they do their investigative function. John Quincy Adams, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover, Gerald Ford, Abraham Lincoln, all testified in front of Congress. So, you know, Trump brags that in his tweets or his social media truths, whatever they are, the fake tweets that he sends out, that um, he just wants his day. He wants his, yes, I'll come in, live testimony. Um, Great, you'll get live testimony, but you're going to be in response to the questions that we have to ask you about these 10 different things. But you know he's going to, I mean, my prediction, I want to hear yours. He's going to chicken out. Um, he's not going to appear for this. He's going to come up with some sort of excuse why he couldn't reach agreement with them. He wanted to do it live. He wouldn't do it under oath. Some BS. And then they're going to have to either find, they're going to have to find him in contempt. And then the real problem is, what does the Department of Justice do with a former president who's going to assert some sort of privilege issues and whether they're going to prosecute that former president um, for a failure to respond to a, a contempt of, uh, you know, in contempt of Congress. What do you think about all that? Oh, he's definitely not going to testify <laughs> because right. uh, I would say deep down, but really it's not so deep. It's why it always just frustrated me so much that there's still a contingency of people who supports this con artist. I mean, it's just so obvious that this is, he is a coward, he is a fraud, and he frankly wears it on his red hat. It's so obvious. You know, I don't want to go and talk about this case, Popak, but 
you know, it was just unearthed that there was another deposition, not the the Jean Carroll deposition took place this week where where Donald Trump was deposed, which he tried to avoid. But there was this other case where there's a class action based on Donald Trump getting paid like nine million dollars for this endorsement he did from 2008 to 2015. We we talked about that 95 episodes ago. I think it was one of our first episodes. We talked about this class action case against him. It's this like clunky, gigantic phone, video phone right before the smartphones came out. And he (laughs) said things like, trust me, this is going to change and revolutionize phones. And he got it was a multi-level marketing scheme. And he got all of these recruiters, like 200,000, 200,000 people to invest thousands of dollars with this company that was an utter and complete fraud. But Trump actually flew into Hurricane Ian to avoid being deposed there to then tell the judge, look, the plaintiffs avoid their the, the plaintiffs miss their deadline uh, to depose me. And then the judge was obviously like, no, we're not deposing you during uh, the Hurricane Ian. Um, but even with just when I read the facts of those cases, he was deposed in that matter in the past month. We just learned Roberta Kaplan also, uh, who also represents E.G. Carroll, represents the plaintiffs in that case. But it just reminds me that everything the guy does is just a fraud. You know, he had this Trump mortgage is a fraud and he's got Trump University and it's a fraud and the Trump stakes and the airlines and the real estate and the I, casino. I, I, like everything he does is a coward and a fraud. And he's such the liar. He's absolutely yeah. not going you, to show up to this to this. Uh, you, to this uh, you know, deposition. you know, it's funny. You know, it's funny on that point. I said on Wednesday's podcast with with um, with Karen that if we were. You know, we didn't know who Donald J. Trump was, and he just came into our offices and uh, oh, new new client on the uh, new client on the schedule. Okay, Mr. Trump, have a seat. Tell me about your prior litigation history. Oh well, I'm one in eighty. Um, I've lost almost. I've lost every case that's ever mattered in federal court, state court. Um, I've been, you know, I've been sanctioned. I've had federal judges call me a fraud, and that I was at the center of a fraud to overthrow the the uh, government. My my fraud leanings started with my father, who was who committed fraud in the housing and urban development um, back in the seventies. I continued it with the bankruptcies that were filed in Atlantic City three times um, in my business dealings. In fact, I've been sued by every. Uh, for every business I've ever had, except for Celebrity Apprentice, I've been sued and successfully sued, including by attorney generals that have found my companies to be fraudulent and have shut them down. I'm currently the target of a of a, both a civil New York attorney general investigation and a criminal investigation on tax issues in the state of New York, where I've applied my trade for the last 40 years. Are you listening? Are you willing to take my case? I mean, I mean seriously. <laughs> I mean, this guy is, um, it's remarkable that he has been able to grift his way to a billion dollars or more on the backs of poor suckers, because one is born every minute, or in this case, millions of them have been born in the wake of Donald Trump. He was a phony business person throughout his career in New York, and people that lived in New York knew it, yet he was able to convince the gullible um, for their own purposes to join him in all the way to the end, to the overthrow of the country. I mean, it's one thing in the beginning, and you you and your brothers talk about it a lot successfully. It's one thing in the beginning to say, all right, his morals and my values sort of align when it comes to policies. I like him better than the Democrat, so I'm going to vote for him. Okay, that's your right. You know, I didn't, 
that's your right to vote. But at some point, you got to jump off the train as it's hurtling to the chasm because the bridge is out. And you got to jump off the train, I guess, at the moment when the guy that you're supporting is trying to overthrow democracy. And yet they didn't and they don't. I'm not sure I quite say it like that, Popak, with him, <laughs> but 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 I say it somewhat like that. The point is is that you would think that at some point Trump's supporters, even if they were conned into it at first, would then go, "Wait a minute, this isn't even an issue of Democrat and Republican. This is an issue of competence and fraud and just a horrible human being." Um, one thing I want to add: he was sued actually in connection with the Celebrity Apprentice because that was <laughs> that was the class action that I just mentioned. He was oh he was, he was selling, selling it he was selling it there the Celebrity Apprentice. Oh, and then one sense. more thing before I move on to the next topic, I want to hit what actually they said about these other presidents who have testified before Congress, because I thought it was just very fascinating from a historical perspective as well. We recognize a subpoena to a former president as significant and historic action, the January 6th committee writes. We do not take this action lightly, but as you likely know, you would not be the, the first former president to testify before Congress or receive a congressional subpoena. They kind of trolled him there. He obviously doesn't know that as you like <laughs> Former presidents John Quincy Adams, John Tyler, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Herbert Hoover, Harry Truman, and Gerald Ford. It was seven Popak. Each okay. testified before Congress after they left office. President Roosevelt explained during his congressional testimony, an ex-president is merely a citizen of the United States like any other citizen, and it's his plain duty to try to help this committee or respond to its invitation. Then it goes on to say, even sitting presidents, including Abraham Lincoln and Gerald Ford, also testified before Congress. Further, both former and sitting presidents, including Nixon, Tyler, and Quincy Adams, have provided evidence in response to congressional subpoenas. So an interesting historical precedent that I don't think a lot of people know yeah. that was in that letter. Popak, I want to go on and talk about, though, we're talking about roadmaps for prosecution. You head to my neck of the woods out here in California, Central District, Southern Division, courts in Orange County, federal judge by the name of Judge David Carter. I've appeared in front of Judge David Carter before. Been a judge since 1981. He was the supervising judge of the criminal department in Orange County before being appointed by President Clinton in 1998 to the federal bench. Probably the hardest working judge, uh, has probably the best reputation of any federal judge, maybe not just in California, but in the United States, like at least known as the most hard work, hardest working judge who always wants to get it right. He like opens up his courtroom some days at like 6 a.m., orders lawyers to appear. Sometimes his court goes until 1 a.m., 2 a.m. to get it right. He was known in the criminal division in Orange County and even in the federal courts for his rehabilitation uh, programs for convicted felons, getting tattoo, helping them get their tattoos removed and helping them transition after he would sentence them. Um, also a Marine uh, and uh, was injured in combat in the Vietnam War. Uh, in one of the uh, most widely publicized battles. This was a war hero, uh, a incredible judge, um, and just known as being a very fair judge here in, in California. 
John Eastman is a former is Trump's lawyer or purports to be Trump's lawyer. And, and uh, Judge Carter found that there was an attorney client relationship. But John Eastman, when he was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee for his records, he used his Chapman University email account. He was a former professor at Chapman University, which is in the Orange County area in California. That's why he filed this case in California. And John Eastman filed this case to block having to turn over these records to the January 6th committee and want to turn it over. So he asserted attorney-client privilege and asked the judge, it got assigned to Judge David Carter, hey, there's an attorney-client relationship. You could look at my documents in camera, meaning without the Department of Justice looking at it at first, take a look at it. Um, and there's attorney-client privilege. I shouldn't have to turn these records over. So let's just pause there for a second. Donald Trump wrote a statement on his failing social media platform after Judge Carter made the ruling that you and I were about to talk about, where he says, I know nothing about this case. I know nothing about this ruling. This judge is make, I'm not represented in this case. And this judge, and he puts it in quotes, is making these rulings about me. This Clinton appointee, I don't know anything about it. And I said, Trump, it's your lawyer. Your lawyer is asserting in this case attorney-client privilege with you. So if you're actually saying that you don't know about this case and that your lawyer's asserting a privilege that doesn't exist, perhaps there shouldn't be a privilege at all here. Um, and how do you not know that your lawyer is the one who filed this case? Not only are you represented, it's your lawyer's case. Well, the weird your representation, the, yeah. that's the essence the, of the case. The weird oh. thing about it is you're hitting the nail right on the head. And I saw your full-throated... Um, not defense of Judge Carter. He he doesn't need defense at all, but support of him in your in your observations and one of your hot takes. I thought it was very very good. The thing that's missing here, even in the even in Judge Carter's courtroom, is that the attorney client privilege. All these privileges that we're going to talk about belong to the client. Eastman has been defending his not turning over these documents to the Jan Six Committee. It's all about the Jan Six Committee and Judge Carter's courtroom because he says there's attorney-client privilege or other related privileges like work work product privilege. And that's been the whole dispute. That's why earlier in the summer, you and I talked about Judge Carter's first ruling, where he found it was more likely than not that both John Eastman and Donald Trump working together both obstructed Congress, which is a crime, and um, conspired to defraud the United States, which is also a crime. And that was headline news when Judge Carter issued that first ruling at the beginning of the summer. Trump has made a calculated decision from the very beginning to stay about as far away from Judge Carter's courtroom and the proceedings as possible. He's left John Eastman twisting in the wind because he'll be a fall guy for, for Donald Trump, along with all the other lawyers, right, making attorneys get attorneys. And so in order to um, not have his fingerprints on anything else, Donald Trump has not done what every other client would do in the situation, which is intervene in the case and say, hey, everybody, I'm the client. It's my privilege. And I want to litigate this with my lawyers. He's not Donald Trump has not appeared. He's not filed a motion to intervene. And that is not by accident. That is not because he's he's a dumb litigant, although he is. It's because he does. He wants to be able to do what you just you just said he did on his truth social, which is to say, I don't know this judge. I'm not involved with the case. I'm not represented there. Nothing there. This is a federal judge who's evaluated all of the emails, over 550 remaining emails. There were thousands and thousands. This last batch was 
about 550, and went methodically through, does the attorney-client privilege um, uh, obtain or not? Does the work product privilege obtain or not? And even if they do, does the crime fraud exception, which destroys the privilege because either the lawyer or the client or both are engaged in a crime or a fraud, does that lead to the destruction of the privilege and these documents being able to be turned over, in this case, to the Jan 6 committee? And whether Donald, you know, Donald Trump wants to be there or not, his client attorney relationship is being litigated in a federal courthouse. And the um, the new bombshell that was the headline that I know you did on a hot take and we're going to talk about here <clears throat> is that Judge Carter, in looking at it, this was picked up by the Gen 6 committee uh, independently, is that back in December, the end of December of 2020, one of the 70 lawsuits that Donald Trump's people and Donald Trump filed to challenge the results of the election was in Georgia. We're going to talk later about Lindsey Graham in Georgia. And he, he initially filed, Donald Trump filed in the state of Georgia, in Fulton County, in the state house, a lawsuit to challenge the ballots that were cast in Georgia, claiming that tens of thousands of felons who can't vote, um, dead voters were voting, and absentee voters um, were, were voting improperly. And he, Donald Trump himself, we kind of lost sight of this when you and I have been doing the podcast. <clears throat> Generally, Donald Trump doesn't make an appearance in any of these proceedings. He lets his lawyers sign for him and they get in trouble. But in this one, Donald Trump himself signed a verification saying under penalty of perjury that everything in that pleading, that complaint that was filed in Georgia was true, including the allegations about felons and absentee ballots and dead voters in Georgia. The problem is that by the time they decided to move that case to federal court at the end of December, Donald Trump was already told by people like John Eastman, his own lawyer, that the verification as it related to the felons and dead voters was incorrect, was false. And John Eastman says in an email that's participated in with, with Eric Hirschman, who we talk a lot about, a former White House counsel, Cleta Mitchell, who was, used to be a Foley and Lardner and was a lawyer for Donald Trump. Eastman and Hirschman both say, we can't have Donald Trump sign another verification that says that there were dead voters and felons in the tens of thousands in Georgia because it's just not true. But Donald Trump did just that. He signed another verified pleading in federal court at the end of December of, of 2020 saying that that exact thing happened and Judge Carter was having none of it and said, you, sir, Donald Trump, likely filed a false and fraudulent verification in state in federal court in Georgia destroying the privilege of attorney-client over those documents, and those are now going to the Jan 6 committee. So, Popak, let me read for you very specifically what that email said that uh, Judge David Carter reviewed, because, you know, when the MAGA extremists go, oh, it's a witch hunt, and they're going after me, and it's all BS, let me just read what John Eastman, the, Trump's lawyer, said. This is the email. Although the this is from John Eastman, quote, although the president signed a verification for the state court filing back on December one, he has since been made aware that some of the allegations and evidence proffered by the expert has been inaccurate for him to sign a new verification with that knowledge 
and incorporation by reference would not be accurate. And then Judge David Carter says Trump and his attorneys ultimately filed the complaint with the inaccurate information that Eastman said was inaccurate. And just the other uh, batch of documents that were turned over uh, involved communications where Eastman and other attorneys suggested that regardless of the merits of these cases, the primary goal of filing was simply to delay to dis to delay or otherwise disrupt the January 6th vote. <laughs> Those, that's undeniably what's in the emails. And Judge David Carter did a very rigorous analysis. And so just for kind of reference too, this was the final batch of documents Carter was reviewing. He had actually previously fined several months back that the crime fraud exception applied. You may recall the line from David Carter that this was a coup in search of a legal theory. But as David Carter made clear in this most recent ruling, finding that the crime fraud exception applies is a two-step analysis. And step one in the analysis is to determine first whether a crime took place. But even if you determine that a crime took place, you have to go to step two, which is were these documents in furtherance of that crime? And so even though Judge Carter found as to the first prong of the crime fraud exception, the court has previously determined that the president was more likely than not engaged in or planning an obstruction of an official proceeding in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1512 sub C sub 2 and a conspiracy to defraud the United States in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 371, when he sought the advice of Dr. Eastman, the court then had to go on to prong two, which is were these specific emails part of that crime fraud. And he says, with because he was looking at about 526 emails or so here, about 518 of those emails were close calls. And he actually said, look, because it's a close call, I'm not going to let the January 6th committee see it. But these eight records, he made, he did a very thorough, diligent analysis and said these eight, though, clearly fall within both prong one and prong two of the crime fraud exception. And the January 6th committee gets it. And we get it right now. And that is very compelling evidence. Going back to the first topic that we talked about, the January 6th committee was anticipating that ruling because they asked for one of the categories of documents, communications relating to your submission of these fraudulent verifications. Someone else who's definitely looking uh, at this ruling as well is going to be Fawny Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, who has impaneled that special grand jury in Fulton County investigating criminal interference. Now that we're very clearly aware that there was false verifications that were signed in uh, Georgia. More on that when we talk about Lindsey Graham. Uh, but Trump has not been having good days in, in court, and that applies also to the special master uh, proceedings before Judge Raymond Deary. The special, the special master is just completely fed up with Trump's lawyers in the Mar-a-Lago uh, search warrant case. This is the case, obviously, where Trump 
stole government records and top secret sensitive compartmented information. We're learning recently, as recent as this week from Washington Post reports, some of the top secret classified records includes information on Iran's missile pro program, military intelligence related to China. We previously learned as well that um, some of the records he likely stole included uh, nuclear secrets as well as thousands of other government records. Uh, those 100 classified records that were at issue that the Department of Justice found in connection with the August 8th search has been returned to the Department of Justice pursuant to an order by the 11th Circuit granting the motion for partial stay pending the overall appeal that that judge in Florida, Judge Eileen Cannon, should never have had jurisdiction in the first place to even have this special master proceeding taking place. Um, but nonetheless, with respect to these other documents, about 11,000 other documents, that's still going on before Judge Raymond Deary pending the overall appeal of Judge Eileen Cannon. Final briefing on that overall appeal challenging her jurisdiction is set to be heard on November 17th. But this status conference that was held this week in front of uh, Judge Raymond Deary, the special master, actually didn't even relate to the 11,000 documents. It related to even a smaller group of like 15 documents that the filter team, the team that goes into Mar-a-Lago before the team investigating the crime, the case team. So before the case team goes in, that's investigating the actual crimes of Espionage Act violations and obstruction. The filter team goes in, they take documents that potentially could be attorney-client privilege with an eye towards the broadest possible interpretation. They segregate those documents. They list these documents as what they've called Exhibit A documents, and they've uh, showed those documents right away uh, to Judge Eileen Cannon as early as August 30th. But these are documents like Donald Trump granting clemency for people and uh, immigration policy during the Trump administration, um, things that were created uh, while he was in office. And the Department of Justice was like, look, you know, there are attorneys that may have been involved in the analysis, for example, like in a clemency grant, but these are still executive documents. These are the executive, th these documents are government records and presidential records because they were created at the White House when he was the president. And so he shouldn't get to keep those are on his own personal records. But even with those 15 records, Trump has basically objected to almost all of them. I mean, he didn't, to six he didn't, but to like nine of them, he's basically claiming all these documents are both executive privilege and personal records. Stuff like clemency grants. He's saying mine, that they belong to me. And the Department of Justice is like, first off, it can't be executive privilege and personal at the same time. Those are internally inconsistent concepts. If it's a personal record, you can't claim an executive privilege, which is a privilege for confidential communications that take place while you are the president to try to protect those deliberations. Um, and then on the broader point on executive privilege, what the 11th Circuit previously held, a past president can't prevent the current executive branch from having its own records back. And you can't just steal records and then claim, oh, they're mine, 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 after the fact and not go through the Presidential Records Act uh, process. There was this telephonic conference held on Tuesday, and Deary was like, I don't have patience for this. Where's the beef? Like, what are you even claiming? you know, to Trump's lawyers. Like, what, what, what are they, just because you say it's privileged and personal doesn't make it so. 
And then Deary was also frustrated just with this whole process that Judge Eileen Cannon set forth because we're talking now just about these 15 Exhibit A documents, but there's 11,000 other documents. And Deary's like, I have no clue because Judge Eileen Cannon did not allow this process to take place on a rolling basis. I recommended as the special master that you designate documents, you make your claims going forward. But for whatever reason, Judge Eileen Cannon said, don't do it that way. So I have no clue the next time we meet, which I think is like November 12th or November 14th, right around there. I have no clue if you're going to claim objections to thousands or 10 or one. I, I don't know. But Popak, it seems that they're going to make objections to thousands. Like they're make they're claiming every record he stole just because he says mine, mine, mine are personal. It's it's absurd. What do you think? That became like a Ben hot take. <laughs> I was wondering when I was going to get in. All right, let me see what I can do. I'll give you all of Lindsey Graham. So all good. All right, all right. <laughs> we're going to trade. I'll make up for it. You can order lunch during that part. During that one, on the um, well, one thing I find is is um, I, you did an exhaustive overview. There's nothing else to contribute there, but <clears throat> there is one thing that I found peculiar from a procedural standpoint, and I want to get your take on it. So the Department of Justice has a full-blown expedited appeal, as you mentioned, at the 11th Circuit, which is going to time out full briefing by November 17th, presumably oral argument in front of the 11th Circuit. And they're going to make a decision whether Judge Cannon should have set up this process at all, this very creaky, lack of supported um, special master process. So, you know, Raymond Deary and all of his work could go poof like that. Um, once the 11th Circuit has an opportunity to rule and or another special motion, emergency motion to the um, to the Supreme Court through Clarence Thomas, who's the um, who's the 11th Circuit uh, duty justice. But one thing the Department of Justice, I was surprised, didn't do is ask a very receptive 11th Circuit so far, ask them for a stay to stop now Ray Deary from doing any other <laughs> review, <laughs> right, of the 20, it turns out it's 22,000 pages uh, in 11,000 documents. So it's about two pages a document. There was a speculation that it was almost 200,000 pages of documents, but it's not because now a vendor, uh, uh, a company that does the electronic discovery has downloaded all of the all of the documents and told the judge that it's 22,000 pages, which is still, you know, a Herculean effort to get it done by the cutoff date of December that the judge set for this. But my fear is he's going to like get it done. And one of the things that they're going to argue with the 11th Circuit is there's no irreparable harm because, you know, let him finish his work. He's almost done. If I were the Department of Justice, now knowing what I know about the 11th Circuit, having the two rulings in my favor, I would say, oh, by the way, let's stop Ray Deary from doing any more work until we get to the end of it. Because you know Trump's going to say in his filing, he's going to say, what's the harm? He's almost done. We had a couple of conference calls. Some of them were good for us. Some of them were not good for us. He's almost done. Let him finish. And that's going to be one of the prongs that the 11th Circuit's going to have to consider. So Ben, why don't you think the Department of Justice moved to stay the continued work of Ray Thierry? Because Trump continues to incriminate himself in those proceedings <laughs> by making the claims that these documents are both personal and executive privilege. You got a free shot to kind of statematize Trump on a lot of these issues. They've got their hundred classified records back. Judge Raymond Deary 
through the end. All that's going to happen to Trump by going through the special master process is he's going to be sanctioned and he's going to lose there. Now, what could inevitably happen is because all the special master is empowered to do is to make recommendations, but those recommendations could eventually be overruled by uh, the underlying federal judge, Judge Eileen Cannon. And so I just think that the Department of Justice is fine with him kind of flailing before the special master while there's an appeal. They moved for an expedited appeal to hedge against that argument. So when he makes that argument, they're going to say, well, we we sought the appeal as quick as we could possibly make it. Um, so we've we've taken every step and Trump asked for it later. So we recognize the irreparable harm. We also recognize that the 11th Circuit needs time to hear briefing. So we've we've dotted all our I's and crossed all our T's. That's that's my theory, Popak. But more importantly than my theory there, I want to hear from you without <laughs> me introing the topic, what you think about oh. Lindsey Graham losing his appeal to the 11th Circuit and then seeking an emergency application before the Supreme Court. Popox training wheels are off. Here we go. Let's see if I can do this. <laughs> so this is another best of times, worst of times. We got two of those today where we get one ruling on one day and literally uh, we get an application to the Supreme Court the very next day. We don't even have time to celebrate um, some of the results on this show. One of them we're going to talk about is the student loan uh, uh, forgiveness program that Biden had and what's going on there in the next segment. But here we're gonna talk about Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham, who there is no dispute, um, interfered with the counting of votes in Georgia. I don't think anybody can dispute that. Brad Raffensperger, the, the um, Secretary of State, has already testified both to the Jan 6 Committee and to uh, Special Prosecutor Fonnie Willis's um, uh, special grand jury. Uh, and has said just that. He said that he got uh, not one, but two phone calls from um, Lindsey Graham and that he interpreted those phone calls as follows. Lind that Lindsey Graham was was asking him if there are a way to throw out legitimately casted absentee ballots so they wouldn't be counted in the vote total for Joe Biden. That's what another adult in government who is a Republican had to say in Brad Raffensperger. And so the world wants to hear from Lindsey Graham about those phone calls. These are separate from the phone calls that Donald Trump made and were recorded to Raffensperger, which again is not disputed, in which he said, can't we just find 11,785 votes between friends so that I can win Georgia? This is a separate phone call. Let's, let's recall that Lindsey Graham is not an elected official in the state of Georgia. He's an elected official from, the, from South Carolina. Yes, he was on the judicial, the Judiciary Committee. Yes, he votes as a senator to certify an election. And he's tried to say that that all the calls I ever made, oh yeah, those calls happened. I won't tell you the content of them because I'm claiming they're covered by the speech and debate immunity clause of the U.S. Constitution, which is Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1. I was doing my legislative function. I was doing my investigative function so I could I could certify an election, which I ultimately did, he said in his recent filings. I certified the election for Joe Biden. I was making those phone calls to get to the bottom of the results. Just I just happened to call Georgia the same place that Donald Trump and his campaign were calling to try to harass, coerce, 
and pressure elected officials to to throw the election in his direction. I guess that was just a mere coincidence. And it's all covered by speech and debate. And I'm not allowed to be questioned by a, and here's the part that got my goat when I prepared for this podcast. And and I'm going to call it out for what it is. It's a bit of misogyny and a bit of um, crapping on Fawny Willis by name in Lindsey Graham's filing to the Supreme Court. We'll talk about that next. And I don't like what he called her. I don't like how disrespectful he was towards her. And I don't like the fact that three men signed that brief on behalf of Jones Day, which is the go-to law firm for Republicans in trouble um, who signed these pleadings. We'll talk about that next. Let's talk about the good news uh, earlier in the week. On Thursday, the 11th Circuit, which we talk about a lot, which is split, but is majority Republican appointed, a three-judge panel, it's always three-judge panels usually at these circuits, a Clinton appointee and two Trump appointees voted against Lindsey Graham to support the Judge Lee uh, Lee Martin, uh, Lee Martin, a Northern District of Georgia judge who had earlier ruled that while there were elements of what uh, Lindsey Graham did that were clearly legislative function, investigative function, and covered by speech and debate, there were subjects that were outside of that immunity, and he was going to have to testify. He said. Specifically, you're going to have to testify about any contacts you have with the Trump campaign to coordinate or arrange your phone calls, any of your phone calls with Raffensperger, any of your emails and other things to pressure Georgia officials. Um, and all of that is, is, as far as the district court judge was concerned, was non-investigatory conduct, therefore, outside of speech and debate. The 11th Circuit, that three-judge panel, two Trump appointees, one Clinton, agreed with the lower court judge and ordered Lindsey Graham to appear on November the 17th to testify before Phony Willis's special grand jury. That was Thursday. Friday, no surprise, um, Lindsey Graham's lawyers, including Don McGahn, who used to be an attorney, including in the Trump White House, who now works at Jones Day, filed their application to Justice Clarence Thomas, Assistant Associate Justice Clarence Thomas, who is the 11th Circuit judge. Now, as we talked about, uh, uh, Ben, you and I talked about with the um, uh, the uh, Trump appeal of the 11th Circuit ordering him related to these Jan 6 documents and things related to Judge Cannon, in which Justice Thomas referred it over to the full on banc panel of the U.S. Supreme Court for all nine judges to weigh in and lost. Again, though, Thomas has a decision to make. He can either make the decision on his own, and we're going to talk about justices making their decisions on their own later in the podcast when we get to the uh, Biden student loan forgiveness program, or he can refer it to the full bench. We don't know which he's going to do. The application for a stay is actually like addressed to Justice Thomas, who makes the first call. And in there, the lawyers, when they got through with their flowery language about we're just defending the Constitution and the institutional interests of the Senate, and this is a classic speech and debate case, and everything that they want to inquire about falls within the investigative and legislative function of a sitting senator, and you know, irreparable harm will happen if he, if he's, if he testifies. What I didn't like, Ben, I want to see if you caught this, is when they talked about Fawny Willis. They so tried to demean and diminish her. 
And I thought there was a strain of misogyny in there when they quoted it this way. They said, this is a case about a U.S. sitting senator being forced to be compelled to testify despite the speech and debate clause of the U.S. Constitution and a, quote, local prosecutor named Fawdy Willis. Now she's just a local prosecutor who happened to be named Fawny Willis. She doesn't get to be district attorney. She doesn't get to be the special prosecutor under Fulton County law being supervised by Chief Justice McBurney. She's just a local hack and a woman who's going against Lindsey Graham. I didn't like that at all. I think that's not going to ring well or, or sit well with some of the justices should it go to a full panel. I think it, it undercuts her and her function. They also take a pot shot at Georgia process. And they say in the Georgia process, it's it's not even a real grand jury. It is a special investigative grand jury that's more akin to a civil body, not a criminal body. Now, why is that important? Because we haven't reported it much on the podcast, but there have been a series of Fawny Willis subpoenas that she's tried to enforce against people like Cleta Mitchell and Sidney Powell in states like Texas, where Texas Judges have refused to recognize Fawny Willis's and, and Chief Judge McBurney in Fulton County's authority to issue those subpoenas. And they've totally treated them like just pieces of paper that you just find on the street. And they say, oh, no, that's not a subpoena coming out of a criminal process. And it's not Texas. And we don't recognize that in Texas. And they refused to force Texas citizens with important information that would have been important to the grand jury to testify in Georgia. Now, other states, of course, like New York, um, have recognized it under the full faith and credit of the United States and under a body of statutes that allow for the uniform uh, recognition of one state's subpoena to another state's. And so Rudy Giuliani had to testify because New York so recognized that. But you can see already they're trying to get the Supreme Court to take the bait that this is not really a criminal investigative body, and even if it was, classic speech and debate. We're going to have to see what what Justice Thomas does. He's ordered that there be full briefing on this issue, um, you know, relatively quickly, and then we're going to see, like we did last time, whether he makes a decision on his own to to grant the stay and and prevent Graham from testifying on the seventeenth, subject to full briefing at the Supreme Court. Who knows when? Or if he refers it over, which he did last time, just two weeks ago, to his his full nine panel, and they make a decision one way or the other. Question for you, Ben, is what do you think, knowing now that all the times that the U.S. Supreme Court has been asked to intervene basically on Donald Trump's behalf, he's effectively lost. What do you think they do with speech and debate and Lindsey Graham here? I think you'll have Clarence Thomas refer it to the full court, similar to what took place at Mar-a-Lago. I think they'll deny it. That's also informed by the fact that like the Mar-a-Lago search warrant matter that came before Clarence Thomas, which he referred to the full court, there there was a per curiam and unanimous decision there. It was two Trump, one Obama. Here there's two Trump, one Clinton, all agreeing that the speech and debate clause does not apply to certain categories of communications. And those categories of communications include exhorting, cajoling, in other words, threatening the Secretary of State of Georgia to overturn 
election results, communications with the Trump campaign, and public statements made to the press. Those three categories, the district court judge in a very diligent finding and the 11th Circuit agreed are fair game for Fawny Willis's investigation. What the 11th Circuit actually said was that the district court judge went a little further than what the law may actually protect for speech and debate and found that Lindsey Graham could engage in informal investigative functions as a senator outside of a formal committee assignment and committee investigation, which the 11th Circuit mused may or may not actually be protected. But they acknowledged the district court said, in this case, that is a close call. And and Lindsey Graham doesn't have to talk about that. But those other three categories, Lindsey Graham needs to talk about. And I think if you go back and you look at the Supreme Court precedent in this area, there's that case gravel from, I believe it's from the 70s that addressed speech and debate issues, which talked about where legitimate legislate the line between legitimate legislative activity and those other categories I just mentioned. Lindsey Graham's a conduct to me would fall squarely within the gravel case of the exceptions to the speech and debate clause further anticipating Lindsey Graham was going to do this. The district court judge set forth the process whereby when Lindsey Graham's asked questions, he can still assert the privilege on a case by case basis. And the district court judge said that she would actually make case by case rulings, but you couldn't just use the speech and debate as a complete shield not to show up in the first place and not to appear, assert the objection on a case by case. The district court judge wrote a bulletproof order, which is why the 11th Circuit made that per curiam ruling and why I'm very confident the Supreme Court will reject Lindsey Graham emergency application. Before you move on, before you move on, because this will dovetail with the next thing we're going to talk about with Bannon sentencing. Bannon makes a big deal out of quote unquote outdated case law for the 1960s that shouldn't apply to him. The case law that you just referred to that the 11th Circuit used, I want to make two observations, one historical. The Gravel versus U.S. case from 1972, the Doe versus McMillan case from 1973, the Eastman versus U.S. case from 1975, all U.S. Supreme Court cases, all binding precedent. It is okay, listeners, followers, and viewers of Legal AF, it is okay to have cases that are that old. They are not outdated. Just because they came out of a certain era, and there's a reason for that, just as there's going to be a whole line of cases from the Trump post-Trump era that are now going to be on the books that are going to be cited by lawyers and scholars and legal commentators 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years from now. There's a historical reason why there's going to be a whole bunch of cases in 2021, 2020, 23, 24 related to Donald Trump and the aftermath of Donald Trump, just as there was in the 70s in the aftermath of the last president who tried to cling to power illegally, Richard Nixon. That's why those cases are dated 1972, 1973, and 1975. And so old law is not bad law. Old law is usually referred to in our business as hornbook law, um, indisputable black letter law that just becomes part of the furniture, part of the woodwork, and part of these big books and electronic books that you and I refer to as the hornbooks. It's so settled law 
that it is indisputable. And that's what those cases are. Yes, we have a Supreme Court that seems to take special delight in overturning precedent, even precedent from just two or five years ago, because now they have the numbers on the right-wing conservative side. But just because the cases, you know, I don't want to adopt the vernacular of the opponent. That that's that's a problem when you're when you're litigating. Sometimes you slip and you say outdate. You didn't do it. I'm just I'm saying people say outdated or old or those are good things. Those means that they've been settled for 30, 40, 50 years, the way we thought Roe versus Wade was. So all of that case law that you just talked about is the proper body of case law that the 11th Circuit relied on and that the Supreme Court should continue to rely on to reach their decision. It's not outdated. It's the opposite. It's it's indisputable black letter law in this particular area. And it came out of a crisis, which was a crisis of the presidency from Richard Nixon, the way the new body of law is going to come out now because of Donald Trump. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show, one of our favorite podcasts long before they started sponsoring us. The Jordan Harbinger Show combines in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds like Barbara Boxer and Anderson Cooper with Feedback Friday episodes to respond to listeners' questions about everything from conventional conundrums like asking for a raise at work to doozies like helping a family member escape a cult. It's what we talk a lot about on the Midas Touch podcast and Legal AF. It's a great compliment to this podcast, too. Here, you might hear the latest news about what's going on in our legal system and how it relates to politics. And on the Jordan Harbinger show, you'll learn useful advice from heavy hitting interviews with top guests who will also talk to you about the intersection between the law, politics, and how we can fight back for our democracy. And that, folks, is just the beginning. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That can mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could be just discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's Harbinger spelled H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, The Jordan Harbinger Show, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, back to our show. I think the difference as we pivot to the Bannon case, though, is that the gravel case that we cited here for the speech and debate clause regarding the exceptions is Supreme Court precedent. The case that the D.C. Circuit relied on in finding that an advice of counsel defense cannot be asserted in Bannon's criminal contempt case, the Licavoli case, is a 1961 case within the D.C. Circuit. And there, the D.C. Circuit had actually held the definition of willfulness, which is an element of contempt, 
but how willfulness is interpreted has actually been interpreted differently over time in other cases in the D.C. Circuit. And the argument Bannon's lawyers make is a very nuanced one, saying it's not Supreme Court precedent, Licavoli, it's D.C. Circuit Court precedent regarding what constitutes willfulness in excluding an advice of counsel defense. And the D.C. Circuit has reached more recent holdings and more recent precedent finding a certain mens rea or mental state for willfulness, which it didn't in 1961, and that a mens rea consistent with modern case law needs to be applied for contempt of Congress versus simply not showing up in response to a subpoena, which is why the conviction against Bannon was so easy. Let's talk about the Bannon case. One thing I should just quickly mention, though, when you talk about Fawny Willis being the district attorney of Fulton County, Fulton County, of course, is the most populous county in the state of Georgia, has over one million uh, inhabitants, um, and its county seat and largest city is Atlanta, the state capital. So for them to say some local prosecutor, um, there's a lot of local prosecutors who actually are local prosecutors who they would uh, probably say the esteemed uh a uh, district attorney from a, a town that probably has, you know, 5,000 people. It's one of the most populous counties in the country that Phony Willis is the uh, district attorney of. But turning to Steve Bannon's sentencing, he's sentenced to four months in prison, a $6,500 fine. In the sentencing memorandum submitted by the Department of Justice, they sought uh, six months. Uh, Bannon's lawyers sought no. Uh, jail time and claim that there was no mandatory minimum for contempt of Congress. When you uh, file these sentencing memorandums, you have to follow in the federal court system these sentencing guidelines. And there's a whole podcast that can be made on sentencing guidelines about minimums and maximums and what the sentencing guidelines require for certain types of crimes and convictions. But for contempt of Congress, the sentencing guideline at the highest level was six months in prison, even though the underlying criminal conduct, the misdemeanor, has a penalty of up to one year for each count or two years, the guidelines for this state in this type of setting, it is six months max. The Department of Justice asked for six months max. They got four months, a $6,500 fine. They were asking for $200,000. Frankly, uh, the type of money Bannon makes, either two hundred k or $6,500, is kind of the same. It's not going to impact him at all on the monetary side. Lots of people are very upset, not just at the amount of months that he was sentenced to in prison, um, but also the fact that the judge stayed or stopped the prison sentence pending pending his appeal on that issue that I just mentioned. And the issue I just mentioned was he was excluded from bringing in as a defense advice of counsel defense, that his lawyers may have mistakenly told him that there was executive privilege that he had to protect and assert for Trump. 
even though he did not have an executive privilege, even in the sentencing that took place, Judge Carl Nichols, who is a Trump appointee, stated that you were a private citizen at the time of relevance for what you've been subpoenaed for. You didn't work at the White House. Um, so that is, though, what Bannon wanted to introduce, that my lawyer told me I had executive privilege. I didn't willfully uh, not show up. I was just relying on what my lawyer told me, and that was precluded based on this 1961 case, Licavoli, which basically said there really isn't a mens rea for contempt of Congress. There really isn't a mental state of intent when we're determining what willfulness is. Willfulness is demonstrated by simply not showing up to the subpoena. You don't have to go into the person's motivation. Popak, was justice served here or was justice denied? Served with an asterisk. <laughs> um, firstly, to the people that are upset that he let him walk out, let Bannon walk out the front door if he timely filed a notice of appeal on the issue of the Licavoli issue, which you've, uh, you've provided a good explanation about, I think if the sentence were longer, um, given the appeal process and the length of time it takes to appeal, I think he might have considered remanding him to the federal marshals and having him take off his belt and his shoes and putting him in a jail cell, which we all would have liked to have seen. Given the fact that, as you said, the maximum sentence that he could have thrown the book at him, that book would have only been six months. And the minimum, well, six months per count, by the way. So it could have been 12 if he if he sentenced them concurrently. And the minimum sentence is one month per count. So two months or 12 months would have been the max on the two counts that he was convicted of. If he had gone to the max and it was like a year, then maybe he might have said, uh, you know, go in, serve your time. And if I'm wrong, you know, you, they'll pop you out. But be because he calculated in his own application of what, as you said, you could make a whole podcast out of this, and I did a little bit of it with Karen this past Wednesday, the upward departures and the downward departures to get to this kind of calculation of a score on a chart that is the sentencing guidelines to tell the judge what is the min and the max, the minimum and the maximum for the sentence with mitigating factors and aggravate, ag aggravating factors. He came up with four months, which is pretty close. If you go back to the podcast, I think you and I said five months. Uh, it was about the time that he was going to get. Having done that and then setting a relatively low fine, where the judge baked into his analysis a potential good faith, although I don't think Bannon could really eventually find, the jury wouldn't find it was a good faith reliance on advice of counsel. But because of that advice of counsel issue, which the judge already showed a little bit of insecurity about at prior hearings pre-trial, uh, basically saying, mm, I'm not sure it's right, but it is binding precedent on me, this Licavoli case from 1961. I need to apply it. Therefore, I'm going to preclude you from putting on the stand this defense. And as Karen said, our illustrious um, former prosecutor co-anchor, um, usually judges bend over backwards to let all sorts of defenses in because they don't want to be reversed on appeal. And they figure if the prosecution's case is strong enough, it won't matter anyway. But the judge did hear in his gatekeeping function, close the gate to that defense and not let it in. 
Now, not that he thought better of it, but he factored it into the sentencing and said, look, you're going to take an appeal on this issue. I get it. The government is too. I'm going to, it might've been some confusion that might be a mitigating factor in your defense. You're also a former Naval officer. You're a first time offender. I'm going to lower it from the six months that the department of justice is asking from just a shade, a touch. I'll bring it down to four months, but you also never showed um, at all. Um, and, and even to this moment, any remorse about what you did. Um, so that's an aggra- aggravating factor. Your conduct is that you that you refuse to appear and refuse to supply documents and all the other stuff, you know, all the other noise, like his podcasting in real time while he's a defendant, all those comments sort of got baked into the judge in an aggravating factor in that he wasn't respectful of Congress and his conduct was consistent with not being respectful. It was a very contentious hearing. Bannon is currently represented by David Schein, who had represented Trump, if people recall, he was he was a, a, a shorter of the two fellows who had a habit of rambling and meandering off and making a very ineffective argument at the impeachment of Donald Trump on behalf of Donald Trump. Did sort of the same kind of thing during sentencing, did a very long-winded, full-throated defense of Bannon and basically said, um, Judge, he accepted responsibility. He's totally accepted responsibility. The judge pushed back and said, how could you say he re- accepted responsibility, you know, and then pointed to these things that he's done outside the courtroom um, and he's yet to comply, the judge said. So I don't know what you're talking about. Then Shine said uh, another interesting concept. He kind of made up criminal law on the spot. He said, you can't send somebody to judge. You can't send somebody to prison judge who doesn't believe he committed a crime. I'm like, I, listen, uh, there is plenty of people serving time in prisons who had some sort of false thought in their mind that they weren't committing a crime, but that's not enough to destroy mens rea or criminal intent. If it was, everybody would just, you know, this is why the the people who are the Freemasons or the free citizens who don't recognize the authority of the federal government or the U.S. Constitution and don't pay taxes, for instance, get convicted time and time again, because it doesn't really matter whether you truly believe that or not. Um, you're going to jail because you willfully violated, in this case, the tax laws. Same thing here. So um, eventually, even if the appellate court, and this will now go to the D.C. Circuit, which is primarily, you know, on the Democratic side of things when it comes to the makeup of the court, and then ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, while, yes, Bannon sits out and continues to podcast and brag about the fact and thumb his nose at the court system and at Joe Biden and the midterms and all of that. And and that's the thing that's pissing people off. But this was always the case when the timing of the trial was moved to October and then this, or or no, uh, August, and then the sentencing was going to be in October. We knew this was going to come around the midterms. And if he had a viable appeal, the judge was probably not going to send him away for a four month misdemeanor related to um, contempt of Congress. Um, what did you think about letting him walk out the front door pending the appeal? I look, I think overall, I relate to people who say justice was not served here with an asterisk. And. <laughs> And my asterisk is it is a very unusual set of circumstances that has been caused by the fact that a former president was and is a terrorist. I don't know how else to say it. You know, Bannon is cloaking himself 
with this idea that a former president, which is supposed to be the most dignified office, the highest office in our land, right? This person who has created these circumstances where a Steve Bannon exists in public fora, who claims mistake and executive privilege, and I, you know, and I had this relationship with this person. It is an unusual circumstance where you have a contempt of Congress like this, which is why I think the sentencing guidelines, frankly, which again, perhaps we should do a whole podcast. I don't know if people would watch it on the origins of sentencing guidelines. It'll be, and why it'll be great for people, be great for people on our podcast who can't get to sleep. <laughs> exactly. But perhaps the sentencing guidelines need to be updated and reflect situations as our other laws are being updated, which you referenced before, to reflect situations where you have bannons and where you have terrorist presidents and where you have situations like this because the Department of Justice sought the max that they could seek under the sentencing guidelines. Arguably, they could have sought higher, but they would have it would have backfired and they would have stood there and the judge would have said, oh, well, the sentencing guidelines suggest that da, 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 da. And then they could potentially lose their credibility in their other prosecutions. And let's not forget, this isn't the only prosecution of Steve Bannon. He's been charged with a number of other felonies uh, in New York with state crimes where he can serve many, 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 many years in prison for that, decades perhaps in prison for that. And so I think the Department of Justice has to balance the fact as well that this judge too, Judge Carl Nichols, is also overseeing a lot of other cases that are coming before him, criminal and civil, and they need to do everything by the book. That's what Merrick Garland has always said. He's need to, he has to push back against this bullshit narrative from MAGA extremists that it's political, partisan, blah, 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 which it absolutely isn't, but he's textbook in everything. So asking for the max that literally the textbook on sentencing says he did and got what the max is. But I don't think the max is enough. But that's a broader policy debate and policy discussion that we need to have and we will have here on on legal af and as you said we'll make it a uh, midnight edition for all of the people who are having trouble asleep i want to talk about this court of appeals granting the emergency application uh in connection with this student debt cancellation program that was actually set to take place as early as uh october 23rd which is now uh temporarily blocked in this stay masquerading as a stay, but it's really a national injunction, which you and I will talk about. I do want to tell all of our listeners and watchers this. Make sure you're subscribed right now to the Midas Touch YouTube channel and make sure you're subscribed not just on YouTube, but to Legal AF on audio podcasts. So wherever you get your audio podcast, if you just watch this on YouTube, search for Legal AF right now. Make sure you subscribe and whether you're in the car, on a jog, in the kitchen, outside, taking a walk, whatever it is you do, listen to the audio as well. Leave a five-star review. 
That's what Popak and I ask of you. We deliver this news, this legal analysis. After this podcast is over, please, it'll help us a lot. Spend five minutes, give a review on wherever you get the audio podcast, and make sure you subscribe to Legal AF on audio. Also, if you love independent media like this, unapologetically pro-democracy, real news, real analysis, no both sides, no just BS talking points, the real, real stuff. Here's what I need you to do. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. Our competition is funded by, and the Both Sides competition, Both Sides is a media and fascist media. They're funded by billionaires and have hundreds of millions and billions of dollars to fund their operations. We don't. We have zero outside investors. We're fully powered by democracy and fueled by you. And I always get asked by you, what can we do to help grow this independent media platform? You could help us out a lot by joining one of the membership tiers at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. There are a number of exclusive behind-the-scenes content that gets posted. You could become an honorary producer of the Midas Touch Brother podcast. Your name will appear. You'll get a poster. You get postcards from me and my brothers. You will get behind-the-scenes podcasts footage and more. But most importantly, you ask how you can help. I'm asking you for your help now. Go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch after this podcast is over or whenever, and please sign up on one of those tiers. Help grow uh, this independent media network. And finally, check out store.midastouch.com for the best unapologetically pro-democracy gear. We have wheels of justice, long sleeve shirts, Legal AF gear. Get your Legal AF gear at store.midastouch.com. We also have the Convict or Convict 45 shirts, the Row Row Your Vote, Rovember shirts as well, including a bunch of other uh, great pro-democracy gear. These Midas Touch hats as well are incredible. A knockout fascism beanie and more at store.midastouch.com. And let's get into it, Popak, with what the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal did. They granted an emergency application for a stay by the state of Nebraska in a lawsuit that was called uh, Nebraska versus Biden. It was also filed against the Secretary of Education and the state of Nebraska and several other Republican-led uh, states with Republican governors and legislatures. They all argued that the uh, Biden student debt cancellation program is hurting their states, their Republican states. And they argue it's hurting their states because it is reducing their tax revenue, even though they are not taxing uh, discharge debt as taxable income. They are arguing they may decide to do that in the future. And that's why they're injured. They also argue that some of their state, I wouldn't call them state agencies, nor would the district court, which is why the district court found there was no standing. But some of these groups associated with the state that do collections for the state that have some minor interests in collecting loans, they said that 
they would be harmed if loans were consolidated into direct loans. Uh, the district court judge, uh, who was a George W. Bush appointee, did not buy any of the argument that Nebraska and these other Republican states uh, were selling and said that there was absolutely no standing for these states to even assert uh, that they could sue in the first place or that they were injured. And when you think about it, Popak, under this logic by the states to have standing that their tax revenues would decrease. They could potentially claim standing for anything in any type of setting in any claim based on that argument on hypothetical tax revenue decrease, which is a very dangerous precedent as well that these states want to set to unilaterally dismantle federal policy making that argument. Also, there are some people who have been confused. They said, I thought the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, made a ruling denying the efforts to block Biden's student cancellation debt. That's a separate case. That case was done by this AstroTurf group in Wisconsin uh, in federal court there. And it was like the Brown County Taxpayers Association. And there, the circuit court found that there was no standing. Different circuit court found there was no standing. Then there was an emergency uh, application to Amy Coney Barrett, and she found she denied the emergency relief. This is a different proceeding. So after Nebraska lost in the district court, they asked the district court for a stay. The district court denied it. They then asked the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals which oversees the district court. I think it was the Eastern District of Missouri uh, where the case was initially brought. And then the Eighth Circuit oversees the Eastern District of uh, Missouri. And the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals granted the stay. Now, when I saw this, and I want to get your take, Popak, I said, you're granting the stay of the district court's order? What does that even mean? The district court's order was that there no standing. So how are you staying there's no standing? What you really did, you called it a stay of the district court's order, but really what they did here is they issued a national injunction temporarily blocking Biden from discharging student debt, the government, the secretary of education from discharging debt pending an expedited briefing of the appeal by Nebraska. Now, this does not mean that they've ruled that the student debt cancellation program is either unconstitutional or unlawful, but it does mean that it is blocked until they make that ruling. And the ruling that they're going to make now on the merits while they've blocked the program is whether under the 2003 HEROES Act, uh, which was passed to help student debt in, or empower the Secretary of Education to provide relief regarding student loans in cases of war or other national emergencies, whether that could be invoked right now, as it has by the Biden administration, based on the national emergency created by COVID and based on the national emergency created generally with other systemic inequities. They're going to rule on that. I'm going to pass it to you, Popak, but I want to say this to everybody watching and saying, I have student loan debt or my kids have student loan debt or my friends. What the hell do I do right now? 
make sure you apply. If you are uh, in the category of individuals who meet the criteria, which is usually $125,000 income or less, joint income of two fifty dollars or less, um, and if you have $20,000 in Pell Grants or $10,000 in other loans, apply. Make sure this doesn't deter you. But Popak, I, I, this is a disturbing ruling. And to me, the Eighth Circuit didn't have to do this. Um, they overreached. And I am, frankly, I don't think that they're standing. But Eighth Circuit is a right-wing court. I think there's maybe one Democrat appointee on the whole circuit. I could be wrong, but it's something like that. I'm worried here, you know, and, and, I, and I, I'm cautiously worried because I don't know what they're going to do, but I, I, I have so much sympathy and so much, I feel for so much people, this is, this is a program that's helping real Americans. You know, these groups in these states, when you have uh, Trump increase our national debt, uh, increase the deficit by trillions of dollars, giving billionaires more yachts and more private jets and bailing out billionaires all the freaking time. This is something that just helps people and it gave people so much hope. And for Republicans, and let's not mince words, this is a Republican-led effort to screw you. It's that simple. And it just, it just, it pisses me off. It just really pisses me off. Popak. So it's the second time we've talked about uh, attempts by Republican states and astroturf groups, which is the opposite of grassroots. They're created by right-wing, usually a group of one or two right-wing, heavily financed groups, usually led by two or three big families in America that are completely drunk the cooler of Kool-Aid um, on the uh, on the right-wing and they geek up these organizations to and and finance these organizations to file suits against. Two weeks ago, we talked about one, and they're all federal, and they're all Republican federal judges that are initially shooting down these challenges. We talked about one two weeks ago. Now we have another Republican federal judge in Judge Autry, who sits in Missouri, even though the the states that were before him started with Nebraska alphabetically, but actually not alphabetically. It was Nebraska, Missouri, um, Arkansas, and Iowa had brought, and South Carolina and Kansas had brought the suit in front of Judge Autry. And Judge Autry, like the other judge before him in the Midwest, said, okay, I get your challenge, but the fundamental first thing any litigant plaintiff has to have in order for a federal court to interfere with politics at all and legislative judgment, you got to have standing under the U.S. Constitution, Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution. It's the same article that gives the federal judge his power. Those judges are her power. Those judges are called Article 3 judges. Everybody, all the participants have to come from Article 3. And there is a long body of Supreme Court precedent that says that taxpayer standing cases don't really have standing. That just because you're a taxpayer, even if you're at the governmental level of a state, and you don't like the way your federal taxes are being used, or you don't like the way federal programs are being administered, if your only harm is that of really an average and typical taxpayer, and you don't have a special harm to you, 
even though these states have all tried to make out special harms. They've conjured up or gin up all of the special harm and damage to them, um, which, which is they're only damaging, as you said earlier. Who are they damaging? The 700,000 or a million people in their state that would qualify for governmental assistance and have these loans forgiven, which would only change for the for the for the uh, good, their economic outcome and their future, which is why President Biden signed into law or or used or exercised his power under the Heroes Act from 2003 to find a national emergency post COVID to help these people. And these people are your friends and your neighbors and me and you and everybody else who qualifies. And so for these Republicans to take a stand against their fellow citizen who they are sworn and elected to protect and do and do right by is diabolical and it's immoral. And yet they, they waste they waste the time in the federal court system to try to do it. Fortunately, up till now, every federal judge, mainly Republican, has looked them in the eye and said, you don't have standing. Good day. There's the front door. So you have... As we said at the top of the show, the wheels of justice, there's a giant wheel of justice that's huge in circumference. And there's kind of these little wheels of justice that run alongside of it, kind of like training wheels. And they can, they, can, they can go on at the exact same time. So one set of challenges went through a Missouri federal court system. And now the Eighth Circuit, which covers Missouri, as you outlined, has issued a stay, which is in effect an injunction going a little bit too far there. And you were right, Ben. Of the entire Eighth Circuit, there's only one judge, it's hard to believe, who was appointed by a Democratic president. We, we, we complain about the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. The Eighth Circuit's worse. It's more red than any other circuit court. And Brett Kavanaugh is the duty justice for the Supreme Court overseeing the Eighth Circuit, just as Amy Coney Barrett is the uh justice on duty, if you will, for the Seventh Circuit, which is uh, what we're, on a, where we're going to talk to in conjunction with these two cases. So the Eighth Circuit steps in, looks at Judge Autry, very well-reasoned opinion. Judge Autry said, look, I, I kind of get where you're going, but there's a reason we have standing requirements under Article Three, and it is to prevent, ultimately, the uh, federal courts from improperly interfering with another branch of government, in this case, the legislative branch and the executive branch, because the executive branch in Biden is exercising powers given to him by the by the legislative branch in the HEROES Act, and the judiciary branch kind of stay out of it unless somebody has legitimate standing to be in that courtroom at all. So the Eighth Circuit has set a very fast briefing schedule. It was an administrative stay. There's not even a judge that's listed. Uh, on there. It, it was issued by the clerk of the Eighth Circuit at the direction of the court, I assume the chief judge of the Eighth Circuit, and now and setting an expedited briefing schedule that's going to go very, very quickly. But still, in the meantime, the Biden administration, until there's a, another ruling um, of another circuit or of the Supreme Court, feels that all it can do, although it's important, is to collect and process the applications but not actually grant the relief until we get through the Eighth Circuit. Kavanaugh, either making the decision on his own, and we'll talk about Amy Coney Barrett next, or referring it over to the full Supreme Court. The same one day apart, right? One day apart, the um, one day earlier, 
Amy Coney Barrett sitting as the justice in charge of the Seventh Circuit on her own, without even referring it to the full panel, uh, uh, rejected an, an emergency application by another group of Republicans and the ones you talked about, this Brown this Brown County uh, and AstroTurf groups, and said, no, basically for now, it doesn't look like you have standing. And the ruling made by the judge in that case on those facts seems to be right. And I'm not going to I'm not going to find that you are likely to succeed on a future full appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And therefore, I am denying your emergency application. There was a lot of cheers that went up. Yay. Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court by extension, has basically blessed the Biden program, at least this particular challenge. And then it was like, oh, the Eighth Circuit has stepped in and said on another related challenge. I don't think that the case in front of the Eighth Circuit in terms of standing and the parties in front of the Eighth Circuit is any better than the one that Amy Coney Barrett just rejected. And Brett Kavanaugh, though, is going to have to make the decision because, you know, know, he can consult with Amy Coney Barrett. He He knows what his fellow justice just did, but he's going to make an independent ruling one way or the other. He may, based on the fact that Amy Coney Barrett made the decision on his own, on her own. He may refer the thing over to a full panel of nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court, because now we've got almost two competing circuits, the seventh and the eighth, running here at loggerheads potentially and and a potential conflicting rulings. And maybe he resolves it by sending it to the full panel. That's what I think is going to happen when Kavanaugh eventually gets the eighth circuit's ruling one way or the other. What do you think, Ben? Well, that takes place, though, the ability to discharge student debt will still be blocked. And so we hope that this process is expedited as quick as possible because real people's lives who are impacted by this are being harmed by what these Republican states are going to do. What I'm concerned about, Popak, is the state's rights angle of someone like Kavanaugh here versus the taxpayer general standing argument that was rejected in the seventh and eventually by Amy Coney Barrett because there is no generalized taxpayer uh, damage article three standing. But here, the state claiming it, right? You think back to what we talked about earlier, you know, uh, we're probably talking about states that are less populous, some of them than Fulton County, right, or close. Um, yet you're having there the view uh, by someone like a Kavanaugh that perhaps these states should have standing, not just in this case, but in all cases. There's a, there's a case that's set for oral argument called United States versus Texas that's going to be heard by the court uh, November 29th of 2022. And the issue involves certain uh, homeland security immigration guidelines. But the standing issue is kind of similar to this generalized standing argument that states are trying to make to further erode any powers of the national government, the federal government to do things, which has a very sympathetic ear with this right-wing Supreme Court, just dismantling the powers of the federal government. 
That's why I'm not answering your question directly, Popak, because in normal course, it's very easy for me to analyze the law here. The law is should be very clear. These states are asserting some hypothetical, uh, non-tangible future, not real injury, a generalized tax revenue injury, and trying to interfere with the federal government's policies under the HEROES Act, where there should be not only uh, uh, a standing issue, but a supremacy clause issue as well, that the federal government should be able to to do things that it wants to do with student loans. Um, and for the state to claim an injury and try to vitiate what the HEROES Act did and its invocation by the Secretary of Education, it's complete BS. But who knows what Kavanaugh's going to do? Who knows what this Eighth Circuit with no uh, Democratic appointees is is going to do? The law is clear about what they should do, um, but that's why I actually yeah, I, have yeah. concern. This one. Sorry, guys, I didn't mean to interrupt. I think the Eighth's going to screw him. I think the Eighth is going to side with the stay and the injunction. I think Kavanaugh gonna, is going to take it. I just think Kavanaugh sends it over to the full panel. And yes, the delay is going gonna, is gonna to impact people actually getting the relief, but not the processing of their applications because the Biden administration has made it clear that, that they're, they're going to be taking and processing so that if they eventually are able to vacate this injunction, um, they're going to be able to, they're going to be able to um, give the relief that they've uh, promised. And, and, you know, and, and I conclude with this, though, it's not both sides. It's where the media gets it wrong here. You know, as we're recording this, there is a QAnon rally uh, in a Q, I should call it a QAnon Republican rally in Pennsylvania because the uh, Republican candidate for governor, Doug Mastriano, is a headline speaker. So is Eric Trump and others. But it's a QAnon rally. Yet the media treats it like, oh, it's a both sides, Democrats and Republicans here. And will Biden get his initiative through? And oh, well, Biden didn't get it through. OK, Democrats and Biden are fighting for ninety nine point nine 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 percent of Americans. And can they get it right all the time? No, but they try each and every time to do it. But the roadblocks, the impediments, the people who are trying to screw you over are Republicans. Unless you are telling me that you watching this, that you are a billionaire watching this from your private jet in Tahiti or watching this in your private jet from whatever, wherever you're watching it, um, they're not looking out for you. I, I just don't know what else to say. If you're going to get pulled into these ridiculous, contrived culture wars, that MAGA Republicans want to distract you from while they pick your pockets and do things to cause you harm, you got to see it. You got to open your eyes. And that's why when I do this show with you, Michael Popak, I don't view this show as a political show. These are the cases. These are the facts. We give the nuanced arguments. We give the details. But let me tell you who is arguing for accountability, law and order and justice. That's not hyperbole. It's just what the arguments are. 
Who are the people arguing to avoid their testimony? Who are the people invoking the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination? Who are the people running away and hiding from the truth? Who are the people suing to stop you from getting relief? Who are they? They're Republicans. They're MAGA Republicans. That's who they are. It's just what the facts are. And if you're a sadist, if you like being hurt, if you like having if you like having things taken away from you while billionaires and millionaires eat their caviar and laugh at you, then vote for the Republicans and the MAGA Republicans. But why would you want that? Why, why, what world are you living in? What, why would you ever want that to be the case here? And this one, when I saw the ruling by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And when I looked at the history of the case and I saw what these Republican states were doing and I saw the arguments they're making and I see the efforts and the millions of dollars being infused by the Koch brothers and others just to screw Americans, hardworking Americans from getting just some relief, targeted relief. $10,000 we're talking about, $20,000 we're talking about here. And then I also think that the policies by these people are wrong on everything. You see that video by the national economic policy head of uh, Trump, Larry Kudlaw, who was, uh, who was bragging about how UK's prime minister trust had this incredible plan and she was giving tax cuts to the, to the wealthy and how everything is going to go great for the UK. And that's just what the Republicans are going to usher in here. Larry Kudlaw, the same person who said we completely contained COVID at the outset of it before it killed millions of people. They're wrong. They're, they're, they're wrong. They're just wrong. They're cruel. They're evil people. There's no other way to there's no other way around it when you analyze the facts like that. I digress. I'm pumped up, but I want you all out there to be pumped up too. As legal AF listeners and watchers, it's not a passive task. Go out, share this video, share the legal AF videos with the broader community. Send them to family members and coworkers. Let people know the truth right now. That's one of the ways that you can help out. And again, make sure you are subscribed, not just on YouTube. Make sure you are subscribed on audio as well. So you're subscribed on all platforms. Make sure you leave a five-star review. And as I mentioned, it would be really helpful really helpful if you joined the Midas Touch Patreon account at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. That's patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Join one of those membership tiers now. Help grow this independent media platform. You probably subscribe to a bunch of other stuff and you may not even watch it. And you watch this, help grow this community together. And that's how you can do it. Check out store.midastouch.com as well. Get your unapologetically pro-democracy gear, Convict 45 shirts, Rovember shirts, Row Row Your Vote shirts, and much more. And also, Michael Popak and I are practicing lawyers. We handle cases like catastrophic personal injury cases. So if people that you know 
We're in, you know, we really handle, you know, really sad, tragic, devastating accidents where people get killed or maimed or lose body parts and horrible stuff. But those are the types of cases where we represent. So if you know someone who's been through that, you can send them over our way. Um, if there's a big business dispute case, Popak and I handle cases like that. And uh, if there are cases of sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, you know, the statute of limitations in a number of states um, is changing to allow certain cases to be brought, like New York has survivor laws now that are extending statute of limitations, and other states are doing the same. And so if you've been a victim of sexual assault, sexual harassment um, by a boss or a coworker um, in the employment setting, particularly is where Popak and I get involved. Um, uh, you know, but also if, if, if it's been a government official or police officer or someone in business, just let us know. We'll take a look at the case and we'd be happy to I'll let you know if you have a case. You can email me at ben at midastouch.com, ben at M-E-I-D-A-S-T-O-U-C-H.com. Or you can email Michael Popak at mpopak at zplaw.com, M-P-O-P-O-K at zplaw.com. Com and uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we are able. Uh, been a great episode of the uh, Legal AF podcast. Always a pleasure spending these weekends with you, Michael Popak, with you all, the Legal A efforts. Any final words before I close out this show with the shout out, Popak? Pow- powerful show, just linking again that you and I sit for our listeners, followers, and watchers at the intersection of law and politics. And um, we do it unvarnished, no holds barred. We don't blow smoke or sunshine. And we call it like it is, as you like to uh, kind of summarize all that. There's no two sidesism on Legal AF. And I'm proud to be your co-anchor and founder of this show for the last uh, two years, going on more than two years. Popak, appreciate it. Um, appreciate all of the Legal AF community out there. We will see you next time on Legal AF, breaking down the most consequential legal news. Michael Popak, Ben Micellis. Special shout out to the Midas Mighty. Mighty.